Hey guys, very special episode of the podcast coming up next. We're going to be talking about the sixth title for UNC basketball. What does it mean for the program and what does it mean for Coach Williams? Also, I've added a new segment on at the very end that you guys will want to stick around for and I think everyone's going to like it. All coming up next, Mind of Mike J Podcast. Y'all know the drill. Let's roll. In my mind, I'm North Carolina. Can't you see the sunshine? Or can't you just feel the moonshine? Come on, y'all, sing it with me. That's right, we're going to Carolina today. Everybody's going to Carolina because this is the Mind of Mike J podcast and North Carolina won a sixth national title. And y'all should have figured I was going to talk about it. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's just going to get up here and praise UNC for 30 minutes. He's just going to big up them and do a big puff party. And honestly, if that's what you're thinking, you would be correct. I've been waiting on this for a year. I've been, I was heartbroken last year. I had to hold it in. I had to wait for this year. I waited too long. I watched too many of them dang on replays of Chris Jenkins. So no, give me my time. I'm taking it. I honestly have been waiting to do this for quite some time. Matter of fact, Ain't it just like a friend of mine to hit me from behind? Yes, I'm going to Carolina in my mind. Where are the cliffhangers at? Somebody get the UNC cliffhangers in here because I can't. They can sing and I can't. Oh man, what a man! What a game! What a game! Let me tell y'all something. I had the privilege of being able to go to Franklin Street and actually enjoy the game right there on scene. There is nothing like being on campus for a national title win. And if you have the chance to do that in your lifetime, hopefully y'all are fans of teams that are somewhat good in basketball and football because being there during a national title win is unlike anything else. And I think anyone that is a passionate sports fan like I am should have the chance to experience something like that at some point. And a lot of us, because I'm assuming a lot of people listening live in North Carolina. Hey, a lot of we're we're on the roll right now. Clemson got it, got the ball rolling for us in football. UNC brought it home in basketball. We got the women down in South Carolina basketball as well. This is a good. This might be the year to do it. This, so it might now might be a good time. We got a little bit of momentum. I'm just saying, you got to get out there if you can. But just to do a quick recap on the game, that was, I don't know why this 2017 team insisted on making every game like a cliffhanger. I mean, Arkansas, I probably spent the whole entire second half shouting at my TV. Then you had the Kentucky game that had us shell-shocked to elation within a matter of seconds. Then you go to the Oregon game where pretty much the same thing happens. I had never seen two offensive rebounds off a free throw to end a game. I have never seen a game end that way, ever. Not rec ball, not in high school, college, pro game, never. I have never seen a basketball game end that way. Then we get to the title game, and to win the way that we did, I mean, 9 
out of all the teams that I have seen, because I wasn't alive for 1982, looking back on it, that's probably the best UNC team ever. But of the ones that I've had the privilege to see, 2009 is still my favorite team. That's still my favorite team of all time. But this 2017 team was special in its own way. They were the number one team in the nation in rebounding. They were in the top 10% in points scored per game. But the crazy thing was, we didn't overwhelm anybody with offense. This team got it done on defense. You look at Kentucky, held Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox out of the game for the most part in the first half. Then they come back second half. They, you know, started to bring it back a little bit. But for the most part, we held two guys projected to be lottery picks in the NBA draft this summer pretty much kept them out of the game to where they weren't really a factor until the very end. Oregon, Tyler Dorsey, leading the entire tournament in scoring. Held him in check for the most part, up until near the end where he started to break away. Then they also, keep in mind, Oregon also had Dylan Brooks, Pac-12 Player of the Year, pretty much a non-factor in that game. Then to come to Gonzaga, honestly, we made their big men look... Well, one of them. Collins kind of had a good game. But Karnow- that, that Karnowski dude, the big one, I mean, we made him look like a scrub. That you know, that dude's probably not going to get drafted now just because just off that game. He looked soft. He was thoroughly outplayed by Kennedy Meeks, and I loved every second. But this was just, this was a signature. This was a signature team. Anytime you win a championship, that's a signature team. But... This this run, this team that they the way they were able to just hang in there and find a way to win to me says a lot. And it's they're definitely like I said, they're definitely a special team in their own mind. They brought us and they brought us number 6. They brought us championship number 6. So it means a lot. Uh tech, well technically 7 cuz you know hardcore UNC people still count the uh 1924 newspaper championship that was awarded retroactively. But for the most part, six national titles. That is big for the legacy of the program because UNC at the current moment is the only school to have a nat- at least one national title in each of the last four decades. 1982, 1993, 05, 09, and now 2017. No other program can say that. And that is something that we can't ignore. UNC is a blue blood. UNC is pretty much by everyone's standards, one of the top five college basketball programs in the country. So where they rank amongst all the other blue bloods, the UCLA's, the Kentucky's, the Duke, the Indiana's, where they rank, you know, kind of depends on what you feel like is important. But I will say this, no other school is doing it as consistently as UNC is. You look at you look at Kentucky, or you look at, better example, you look at UCLA. With the exception of the championship they won in the mid-90s, for the most part, you can tell the story of UCLA within a you know 20-year window when they had their incredible run in the 60s and 70s that kind of got them to where they are. But then after that, outside, they had the one championship in the mid-90s, and then other than that, not a whole lot to speak of. 
Their team this year looked like they were about to add on to that, but that didn't work out too well. You look at Indiana. You can tell the story of Indiana pretty much just during the Bob Knight era. You can tell the story of Duke pretty much from the mid-80s on. When you tell the story of Carolina, you have to start in the 50s when they went undefeated and won the national title. Not not a lot of people give us credit for that being one of the few teams, one of the few programs to have a team go undefeated in a season. You have to start in the 50s. You have to talk about the Dean Smith era. You have to talk about the teams in the 80s. You have to talk about our team in the 90s. You have to talk about the Roy Williams era that started in the 2000s and has continued to be elite up until and culminating in the championship in 2017. There's not a whole lot of other schools that have that same narrative. So, in other words, not only was this redemption for UNC basketball, but it's really kind of an exclamation point on a program that I already felt like even before this championship win had probably arguably the greatest resume of anyone. So how did we get there? I mean, not going to lie, going into this season, I thought we would be good. I did. I wasn't sure how you were going to replace Marcus Page, four-year starter, how you're going to replace Bryce Johnson, borderline national, almost one national player of the year last year. I wasn't sure how you quite replace those guys. But Kennedy Meeks, Justin Jackson, Barry, I mean, Pinson, all these guys surprised me. Luke May. I mean, they really made, they really made believers out of me because I wasn't sure. I really wasn't. I was optimistic after the team won the Maui Invitational early. But then you, I look at the loss to Georgia Tech on the road. I looked at the first loss to Duke in Cameron Indoor. The fact that UNC couldn't seem to get a signature win on the road. I thought going undefeated at home was great, but I just didn't know what to think about not being able to beat teams on the road. So I just didn't know. I didn't know how we were. I really didn't see us as a national t- as a national championship team up until probably the last couple weeks of the season. So that's what also made this run special for me because they it really kind of snuck up on you how good this team was. And it's not until you go back and look at the numbers. Look at the rebounding numbers, which is number one. Look at how UNC ranked near the top in assists, how everybody shared the ball. Look at how many points they averaged. Not that that's a new thing for a Roy Williams coach team to do. I'm just saying. But, I mean, they held Gonzaga to 34% shooting. I just loved how much they fought and how they really were able to just grind it out and win when they weren't shooting well. Because traditionally, a championship UNC team is over, just overwhelms people offensively. And this is really the first team to get it done that I've seen that just wasn't clicking offensively. We never seemed to really be in a good rhythm offensively throughout the tournament. So it just it just says a lot. And as far as what it means for the program, you know, obviously obviously we've talked about that a little bit, but where does it mean for Roy Williams? Because I think 
you saw ESPN, a lot of these other folks that talk college basketball really kind of waking up to what Roy Williams has been doing. And it's something I've been trying to tell people for a long time. Roy Williams, since he has taken over at Carolina, has arguably the best resume of anybody in college basketball, period. You can make a case that Roy Williams has been the best coach in college basketball during his time at Carolina. He's got more NCAA tournament wins than anybody, and it's it's really not even close. It's by double digits, if I'm not mistaken. Someone might have to fact check me on that. But he's got a huge lead in tournament wins, meaning he makes the tournament often, and when he does get there, he's not getting knocked out in the first weekend. Three national titles, five Final Fours, seven NCAA tournament number one seeds, and eight ACC regular season titles. So in other words, just a little over every other year, he's winning the conference, and you can count on a national title run just about every four years. Now I know what you're thinking, 2009 from 2017 is longer than four years. 2012... And I know my Carolina fans will know what I'm talking about. That 2012 team, had Kendall Marshall not gotten injured, that team could have gone all the way as well. That team had just as much talent as pretty much anyone, and no one really talks about it. Kentucky ends up taking that. I honestly believe, to this day, because that team went to Lexington and lost to Kentucky, by who ended up being the eventual national champions, by one. I stick by it to this day. Kendall Marshall doesn't go down and get injured and break his wrist. We take that one, too. So, Roy's got three national titles, and had it not been for a miracle shot by Chris Jenkins and an injury to Kendall Marshall in 2012, it might have been five. So, you gotta actually, you got to go back and look at the numbers and tell me I'm lying when I say Roy's the best coach since 03. Now, where does he rank all time is different. Because it's there's so much that goes into it. It kind of depends on what you find important. And this is a debate that I would like to have with other people just to get some thoughts. Like I said, I keep talking about I'm going to get the Facebook group up so we can post about this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. When we talk about who the greatest coaches are of all time, I don't necessarily have a problem with where most people... I think you can make a case for a lot of different folks as long as you have John Wooden number one. I don't care what anybody says. If you don't have John Wooden at the number one of your list, I'm not even going to talk to you. Not on this subject. For some reason, and ESPN is part of this because they, they gassed him up a lot. For some reason, it seems to me that there's a lot of people that have already dubbed Coach K the greatest of all time. And... That man is not better than John Wooden. Y'all need to cut that out. I don't know what kind of criteria y'all have, but let me just let me just go over this run real quick. UCLA, 1964. John Wooden goes 30 and 0. 1965, 28 and 2. 1967, 30 and 0. 1968, 29 and 1. 1969, 29 and 1. I can keep going. Y'all want me to keep going? Let's keep going. 1970, 28 and 2. 1971, 29 and 1. 1972, 30 and 0. 
1973, 30 and 0. 1975, 28 and 3. Oh, and by the way, UCLA won the national championship all of those years. And if you lost count, that's 10. 12 Final Fours, 5-time Coach of the Year, 80% win percentage, won conference 19 times, Coach Bill Walton, Gail Goodrich, Lou Alcindor, who later became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. Legends came out of that program. They won 88 straight games in a row. That's multiple years of not losing. So when people say Coach K is the greatest coach of all time, on what planet? Yes, I understand he has more wins. He also is lower in win percentage and plays longer seasons. Keep in mind, back then in the 60s and 70s, even if you went all the way, you went to around 30 games. This year, UNC played 40, which means by the time you get to the NCAA tournament, You've already played more games in a season than a team like UCLA back in the 60s and 70s would have going all the way to the championship game. There's only six games in the NCAA tournament. So you're in the mid-30s by the time you get there. Conference tournaments are guaranteed. Everyone plays in the dang-on conference tournament. Like I said, to get to 30 games, you had to go all the way to the title back then. You get more than 30 now by default. And Kay has been coaching much longer than John Wooden did. So yeah, he is going to have more wins. And I'm not trying to poo-poo a thousand... How many does he have? I know it's over a thousand. I'm not trying to like throw salt or throw shade on that, act like that doesn't matter. But the dominance that you saw out of UCLA is just unheard of. You would never see a team win that much or lose that little over a 12 year span over a 10 or 12 year span you could almost count the amount of games that UCLA lost over a decade span on two hands so like I said I don't know how people don't have John Wooden number one now after that you got a lot of names you can throw out there Obviously, Coach K is one of them. But uh, you got to think about Adolph Rupp at Kentucky, Bobby Knight, Indiana, Dean Smith, UNC. These were guys that shaped their programs. These were guys that built their respective programs up to what they are now. All of them left their impact on the game, all of them won multiple championships. It's it, it really that's where it becomes a debate to me is from that two, three, four, five spot. Now getting back to the original question, where does Roy rank amongst all those guys? I don't know. I think we need to wait until he's done playing. Or excuse me, I think we need to wait till he's done coaching to really have this discussion. But if he were to retire right now and not play another game. You're talking about a man that won three titles, has over 800 career victories, and the second highest win percentage amongst all active coaches. So, y'all tell me. Y'all tell me, where where do you see that? Where do you put Roy amongst that group? 
knowing those knowing that about him. And the crazy thing is, and I got to get on some of you so-called UNC fans right now. The crazy thing is, some of y'all wanted that man gone. Some of y'all wanted him gone. The man wins more than just about anyone we've ever had coaching the program. He develops players, routinely brings in All-Americans, is a class act. And because he didn't call timeout a couple times a couple times when you thought he should, y'all want him fired? Give that man a break. I mean, yeah, he has blown some really big games. But the truth is, when it comes time to win, a.k.a. tournament time, the kind of environment that really shapes your program, because let's be honest, you can win all the regular season games you want. If you ain't getting it done tournament time, no one's talking about you. If you don't have titles, if you don't have final fours, those are the exclamation points on a coach's resume. If you don't have those, you're not in the conversation. And Roy has done this despite the rain cloud that is the UNC academic scandal. Now, I'm not going to get too much into that because I could honestly probably do a whole podcast just on what I think about the UNC academic scandal. But if you've read the Weinstein report, you would know that for the most part, can we at least agree that Roy was not personally very much involved. Like I said, go back and read the Weinstein report that they wrote up on UNC. Roy Williams himself is not very much, is not really mentioned as being a huge player in this thing. So can we at least agree he didn't have much to do with it? And the reason why I want to establish that is because he's dealing with something that for the most part he had nothing to do with. It's cost him recruits. It's cost time and money to the school. Overall, it is just stressful. Yet, despite that, he has still outperformed pretty much every other coach in the country over the last few years. So, some people are convinced he brought that on himself. Like I said, I don't think if there is anyone to blame for this, I think Roy Williams is one of the last people that you put up there. And I'm going to leave y'all with this. How many programs can say that they have two coaches, two once-in-a-generation program-shaping coaches? Let's not get it twisted. Roy Williams has earned that distinction of being that game-changing, program-shaping coach. Right up there with Dean Smith. I mean, think about every other school. Kentucky pretty much just has Adolph Rupp. I'm well aware of John Calipari, and I will give him credit for winning that title in 2012. But for the most part, Kentucky, I see at Kentucky, I see a lot of hype and not a lot of production to match it. So I wouldn't necessarily, now I know what you, I know what, here's the thing. I understand Kentucky basketball right now wins. I understand they often take their conference and blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying, given the talent that has come through there. They lock up the number one recruiting class pretty much every year, and they've been doing this for about six, seven years straight. Would you not expect more than one national title? I'm just saying, would you not expect more than one national title if you're a Kentucky fan? Answer me that. 
Now, back to what I was saying before. You got pretty much just Adolph Ruff at Kentucky. At Duke, it's just Coach K. Indiana, it's really just Bob Knight. UCLA, pretty much just John Wooden. How many programs can say that they have two legendary coaches? That is the difference, and that, my friends, is UNC basketball. And I'm going to just leave it at that. Now, for my next part, I wanted to really experiment with this and really kind of try this out, but I really think I'm going to make it a weekly thing. I'm starting a new segment, and it's really just going to be a reason for me to go off on somebody. This week, we're starting the L of the week. So what we're going to be doing is calling out somebody that needs to be called out for underperforming. And my first inaugural recipient of the L of the week, none other than the king himself, LeBron James. I hate to do this to you, LeBron, because you're my boy. I've been a fan since you were in high school, since you got drafted in 2003. I have defended LeBron relentlessly when it has come to people questioning the legitimacy of his titles and where he stands all time. I cannot in any way, shape, or form defend what I saw from you this week. And from you and the Cleveland Cavaliers, I cannot defend that at all. For those of you that don't know, The Cleveland Cavaliers blew a 26-point lead on Sunday night to the Atlanta Hawks in one quarter. 26 points. Who does that? That was literally the worst collapse I've ever... I don't know about ever, but that was one of the worst collapses I had ever seen. Somebody put a stat up. The NBA is something like 843 and 0. I'll have to go back and look at it. It was one of those really random stats. Something like that. Basically, in other words, that has never happened in the history of the league. Nobody has ever come back from being down 26 points. I didn't even watch all the highlights to see how this even developed because really I don't care. But... I did watch the end of the game, and I did see the highlights. I saw a lot of folks commenting and saying that the refs blew the game. To me, there's no reason you can blame the refs. One, because I don't like blaming referees any time a game goes wrong. And two, there's no reason you should have been in that position so the refs can affect the game that much in the first place. I watched the end, and now I understand... A 26-point game, that's a team collapse. LeBron James personally, in a matter of about 20 seconds, managed to foul a three-point shooter, which anyone that has played basketball knows, your coaches pretty much always tell you never foul a three-point shooter. He managed to turn the ball over on an inbound because he didn't get the ball in in five seconds. And LeBron had the nerve to try to blame the refs. When, you, when he fouled the shooter, let me tell you something. Before he fouled Paul Millsap on that corner three, which at the time I believe Cleveland was up four with like eight seconds left on the clock, before he fouled him, and I, and I do agree, he barely touched him, but LeBron had been called for a ticky-tack foul about ten seconds before that. So my thing is, LeBron, 
you're on the road, you're in Atlanta, there's this 20, this massive comeback, the crowd's going nuts, you know how NBA refs are. You know they're going to look to get involved and kind of take over the game and make that one splash call, especially on a superstar they want to do that. They had just called you for a ticky-tack foul on Tim Hardaway, so you should not have even been anywhere near Paul Millsap on a three. You're not guarding Steph Curry. It's freaking Paul Millsap. If you just get close to him but don't touch him, he's probably going to miss. With less than 10 seconds left, more than likely Cleveland gets the rebound and ends that game. But no, you foul him. He goes to the line, hits three free throws. You turn the ball over again. Not LeBron, but one of his teammates. And you managed to lose... You know, you managed to let them tie it, send it to overtime, and then you foul out. And I will say this, because I, I saw it all over the news that LeBron got called out on a BS sixth foul. It was a weak foul. You know, it was weak. I'm not going to lie. I looked back on it. I saw how LeBron fouled out of that game. That sixth foul was one of the worst foul calls I've ever seen. So I will give you that. Having said that, You are also the man that flops damn near every game. I understand you're trying to get people in foul. A lot of people will get on LeBron for that and just say they they don't understand why he's doing it. I understand why LeBron does it. You're trying to get people out of the game. It's a strategy. I understand that. You want to get other dudes in foul trouble. My thing is, you should have known it was going to come back and bite you eventually. You should have known that karma was going to come back and get you eventually. All that flopping you've been doing, it came back and got you in this game. And you got embarrassed on national television in front of a sold-out crowd. Oh, and by the way, Friday, the Cavaliers lost to the same team in Cleveland against backups. So, in other words... The Hawks came into Cleveland with their subs, their bench players, as in the starters weren't playing. And they beat Cleveland in their house by 14. Am I in the Twilight Zone? Am I in the Twilight Zone? How does that happen? How do you let that happen twice over the... How do you get embarrassed by the same team like that twice over the course of less than a week? That is pathetic. And LeBron James, I after that after saying all that, I am happy to say this, hold this L. And after that, I am done. I am just done. Still a LeBron fan, love the guy. Hope he gets another title this year, but that, sir, you're holding an L for that one. And with that, I can sign off and we can conclude. I appreciate you guys listening. I'm going to be shooting for once a week, and and every week it's going to be on the same day. I'm thinking Mondays. I'm going to try to steadily be cranking out new episodes, so I'm not just keeping everybody guessing. I'm have to, having to post it to let people know when it's coming up. So for the future, everybody, I'm going to establish a, a regular routine day, and that way every single day you can just look forward to the new episodes. In the meantime, appreciate you guys listening. This has been the Mind of Mike J Podcast, and I will see all of you next week. Go Heels!